listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. What's up, Tony? Thought you got off at nine tonight. I did, man, but my damn Ferrari, it, it won't start. Wait, you on empty, bro? Nah, man, full tank, ready to go. They imagine it's been misfiring, so I knew something was coming. Damn, and I thought this car was invincible. For what I paid for it, it should be. Well, it sounds like it could be your fuel injector. Lucky for you, though, I got a guy on his way here right now that's gonna be able to help you out. He definitely has what it takes to help you get started and run smoothly. I bet. Well, while we wait, let's go inside. I'll make us a drink real quick. All right, Chris, buckle up. I'm going to make you a sidecar, the high-octane version. You add two ounces of bourbon, one ounce lemon juice, and three-quarter ounce simple syrup. Now, we're going to put half of an egg white into a cocktail shaker. Now we're gonna shake it real light for about 30 seconds and then fill about halfway with ice. This time, you're gonna shake it real well and then strain it into a new glass with rocks. That's got some legit power right there. Hey man, I, th I think your buddy just walked in. That's him. Time to get this thing started. Okay, Chris, well, I'll see you all next round. Oh, wait, what about my car? Joe Shore is the cybersecurity and risk services executive at LogicGate. He is equipped with over two decades of experience in leading strategic business development and constructing new sales and delivery engagement models. His in-depth knowledge of cybersecurity risk together with supplementary skills of being able to translate and user requirements into product solutions that address client pain points, extend his professional offering. Having expertise in this field also allows him to provide mentorship and advice to startups, which is what I'd like to focus on today. Joe, thanks for joining me and welcome to Barcode. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So you've been in the cybersecurity field for many, many years. And I'm sure have seen product solutions fail or alternatively thrive in what has become a crowded space in terms of cybersecurity tool sets. I'm curious, from your experience, what common traits have you seen from those who have succeeded that should be mimicked by those aspiring to differentiate themselves in the product space? You know, honestly, it's, I mean, talk about real estate, people say location, 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 okay, in, in cybersecurity or even the software industry, I swear it's just timing a lot of it. I mean, I work for a company that sells a SaaS um, GRC solution. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and 15, 20 years ago, we were banging around pretty much doing GRC-ish stuff. And we knew some people that came up with some pretty cool solutions. But at the time, there, it, it probably was a fantastic way of doing things, 
but the market wasn't ready for it. The pe- there was really no one to sell it to. It was like you had to wait for there to be a professional class of CISOs out there, or chief risk officers or chief privacy officers. Like there's a really tiny subset of people that understood what you're trying to do. So everything was very kind of craftsman-like and you know, it was it was like you're selling to your peers. There wasn't a like a big total addressable market like there is now. Um, so I think a lot of the stuff we're seeing kind of hit their stride and, you know, quote, get successful. A lot of times it's the second generation of some of these ideas. It's kind of funny. I mean, there were things that looked a lot like some of the advanced endpoint protection things years ago. There was things that probably addressed APT type attacks before there was a FireEye, but, you know, FireEye hit right at the perfect time. Um, so honestly, I think a lot of it's timing. You can, you can actually be too early to market, but things move so fast that you could almost kind of slow your roll, <laughs> wait for the market to catch up with you or you to catch the market or whatever it may be, and then go back and pound that nail again and see if it works the second time. Yeah. Interesting perspective. I'm curious about the precursor to that. So from taking only a vision or an idea and then applying an action to it to really get the gears turning, what would you say is the first step for that individual who may not have capital built up or money in the bank, but has a solid idea? You know, it's, I think it's becoming more and more apparent. And the more you read founder stories and things like that, as the years go by, um, the ones that honestly, the ones that really stick and the ones that get traction and the ones that really get money thrown at them as opposed to pursuing it. And again, it sounds like stupid common sense, but it's the people that had customers right from the outset. It's the, mm. it's the ones that got commitment from, you know, top, uh, a CISO at a top 20 insurance firm, you know, or that CISO's knows what they're doing for a living and flat out says to them, you know what, if you could take this and go make this an application, I'd buy it tomorrow, you know? Gotcha. And I mean, I've had conversations like that with um, some C-level and board level people where they've said, you know, if somebody can do this for me, here's my cell phone number. You could call me tomorrow and we'll buy it. That's the people that get off the ground quick. There's, I mean, whenever you talk to seed investors or anybody, everybody's got great ideas. Um, and it's a cliche again, but it's kind of like, if you've thought of it, somebody else probably did already. Anyhow. So let's pretend, you know, six different groups of people out there all came up with the same great idea in the same one year time period. Whoever has legit customers willing to pay for that, no matter what stage they're at, they're going to win the fight. Somebody else may get lucky and stumble into a seed investor, an angel or a VC firm that's trying to load some cash. But in general, it's going to be the one that's got paying customers, you know, seeing their cash in hand, like buyers ready to go. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So say that there's a student working part-time in cybersecurity, say in a SOC, and conceptually, they've developed this cure for stopping ransomware. You know, the end of the plague is here, right? How would they legitimately go about pitching that with little experience in the field, potentially zero contacts? How do you prove yourself and be taken seriously in that type of situation? You know, it is tough, especially it used to be the classic story was 
you know, Gates was a programmer and he, he took this big thing nobody wanted and got, you know, stinking filthy rich from it and everything else. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, there are a lot of people with ideas and they're not coder. I'm not a coder or programmer. App developer would never have been. But um, I think we're at a, a unique time in history where with the development of all the no code or low code things, a lot of what's going on in the startup world is people are really just coming up with a really good, for lack of a better term, like a, a storybook. The way you would pitch, you'd pitch like a Hollywood film. You know, here's here's the introduction. Here's this. Here's this. Here's this. And there've always been pitch decks when you're trying to get money. Um, this is this is kind of a little bit beyond that. It's sort of the difference between, or it's a, the bridge between having your pitch and actually having like a minimum viable product where you, you might need developers or might need a, something to show, but that enhanced outline of where, where the inputs really go, what's really being done in your, your secret sauce in the middle, what it's going to look like, the, the output and reports in a dashboard or portal or whatever, what that user experience will look like is really important. But again, it, it, you have to tie in there um, where the revenues get come from. I, I had heard a great quote a couple of weeks ago. Oh, um, it's not real politically correct, but it's interesting. It's like, you know, I'll change the words a little bit, but they basically say, you know, there's a lot of investors out right now. There's a lot of cash and they're not necessarily as smart as they used to be, maybe. <laughs> and I'm being, and this came from a, a really big time PE type of person. Um, so they said they really, a lot of times may not understand your greatest new mousetrap, but they understand revenue and they want to see exactly where that revenue is coming from. So in a lot of weird ways, that person that may not be a developer, they might have a good business head on their shoulders. And that that part of it may be easy for them. They may realize I work in a sock. I've got this great idea and I've got, I know I've got these five clients that I work on every day on my red light, green light screens that have this exact issue. So they're, and you know what, they're all Fortune 100 companies. So there's my total addressable market. And I could put that on, you know, slide number four, talk about the market is this big. And if for some reason, as in the course of my work every day, I get to, you know, I'm always talking to the incident response person at this place or the CISO, if it's a kind of a smaller IT staff or whatever, I've got people I can bounce this idea off of. So that becomes kind of testimonial things she can use, you know, and then you talk about, you know, I know that they're like, you said with DLP, I know they're paying this much for DLP now, you know, we're managing it for X amount of dollars per month, annual recurring revenue, everything else. I'm going to build this that takes care of 10 times as many things and it's going to cost half as much, you know, so I'm going to build the silver bullet, charge half what they're paying already for this protection measure. And here's how it's going to work. No matter how good they are at coding, once they start talking about money or revenue, they're ahead of the game. Right. The inverse is true. They can have the they can be a great application developer, build a great app. And if they can't talk about where the revenue stream is, they're just dead in the water. I love that you say that because there is no barrier to creating an idea, or there is no prerequisite to designing some type of concept. So I think it is a matter of just knowing how to prove value. Oh yeah. So say someone is able to prove value right now, the idea has legs. What's the next move? Are programs like, you know, Y Combinator a viable option or 
you know, what would you say is the next logical move for them? That's a, that's a common scenario, man. Let's face it. So, um, yeah, why common air is like an animal into itself. Now it's so big that it's almost like if you get in it, you're almost guaranteed that you'll be the next hotness. And there's a bunch of other ones like the Y Combinator. I personally think that a lot of the local incubators are pretty good. Like in, I live in the Tampa Bay Metro. So we have a few here. There's a um, Florida Founders, um, oh gosh, I can't think of Tampa Bay Wave. Um, I, I can sort of think of five off the top of my head, which probably means there's like 25 or 30. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably the best low budget or no budget way to go. I mean, just kind of start talking to those kinds of people and see what money might be involved. I know some of them are just, they're like ridiculously cheap. So if it's you and two of your friends that are sharing an apartment together and you're coding and eating pizza, like if you're that, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can go to these places and, you know, for a hundred, couple hundred bucks a month, you theoretically are getting office space and you get like a, a address and maybe they help you get a website. So there's, and, and you're getting access to a lot of pretty high end thought leadership and people trying to help you out. That's the cool thing. The, the good thing, especially in cyber, it's the industry is now roughly 20, 25 years old where it's really taken off. So now you've got people that made a lot of money over the past 20 years or they're done. You know, the, the Ron Gould is in the world. Now they're out. They've started their own, you know, they're either, either angel funders or they start a VC or they're doing like a nonprofit type of VC type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're helping the younger generation figure out what the next big thing will be. And they're, a lot of them are pretty cheap. Some of them do require pretty heavy time commitment, sometimes financial commitment. Um, there's all different flavors of them. The one that I work with a lot is Dreamit. So Dreamit does an interesting thing. It was tougher in the COVID time, but um, they do these things called sprints. So you literally go on a road show and you're you're hitting a whole bunch of companies all at once with your idea, like like customer companies. And these client companies are just very innovative type of places where they like to get, they want the, you know, fire iron crowd strike when it's five people working on it. They want it to be the first in the door. So they introduce you to all these people in a kind of a blitz and you, you come out of there and in theory, you know, after a month of doing this, you've got maybe five or six or 10 clients signed up, you know, for proof of concepts. And like I said, that's in a lot of cases, that's, really all you need to get off and running for the money people. Yeah. It's like speed dating. Right? Yeah. It, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> and the connections you make, right? Like getting those intros and networking with industry professionals is, is critical. Israel's got a, just an enormously vibrant cybersecurity startup scene. And I'm convinced a lot of it is because it's, it's physically a, like a small area. Like they're, Everybody's very, very condensed, which in one hand you think, oh my God, there's so much competition. But by saying so, it, there's a lot of competition, but it's a tiny, tiny little area with lots of really smart cyber people. And they're looking at the whole world as their market. So it's not like they're all competing for business in Israel. That, you know, that, that's not that much. But yeah. they look at it as we're all going to help each other out. We're pouring money into each other. 
And we're going to use all of our connections and networks and get in all the, you know, get into the States, get into EMEA, get into the Middle East and Asia pack and go around the world. Um, so in a, in a way that that Israeli cyber scene is like one big incubator. That's, it's powerful. Yeah. That's, uh, something I've noticed, but never realized why. So that definitely makes sense now. Yeah. They have a great, I mean, a lot, you'll see a lot of them, um, a lot of the founders, it's a funny combination. It'll be a combination of sort of, you know, mid, not middle age, but, you know, like career government people or military people combined with like, you know, a 24 year old mathematician PhD. That's like an AI or machine learning genius. And they're teamed up together to come out with some kind of AI driven, you know, endpoint detection tool or something. It's amazing. It is amazing. So as you see these startups forming, what have you seen personally that causes them to fail or just fade off into the distance? Is it bad ideas, lack of funding? What have you seen that causes them to fall short? I think it's, there's a, um, Chris, I can never remember the name of the author when I'm on the spot. Um, I think it's called bridging the chasm, bridging the gap, jumping the gap, something it's, but it's, it deals with the whole software development cycle or software startup cycle where it looks like a typical bell curve, you know, and the, the first 10 ish percent of who you're selling to in your market are these early innovative people. The ones that will, the ones that will host, you know, a, a dream it sprint, you know, we're going to, you know, I'm at, I don't know, I'm the CISO of Coca-Cola or, or General Motors or someplace. And I'm going to, I'm going to have five startups come in here next week and they're all going to pitch me on what they do. And we may adopt that and bring it into our internal labs and use it. Those are the innovative companies and they could be little, they could be big, but there's only so many of them. Mm-hmm. So once you sell that early adopter innovative group, which is normally the founders of a company, the people that become the C-suite, they're doing one-on-one selling through relationship selling. And they may even have a relatively small direct sales force. You know, they might have five, 10, 20, 50 salespeople out there pounding the pavement, but they can only get to that kind of first group of early adopters because those are the ones that are looking for a very specific set of features and benefits that they're sold on. They've got a really a niche requirement. This software application or piece of hardware, or whatever, meets it perfectly. But to get to that next big group on the arc, which is like 85% of the market, that's where everybody, and there's a gap between it. Everybody sort of peaks off right there. And that's where I, I wound up talking to a lot of startups at that stage. So they've been, been in business for a year or two. They'll have, you know, 20, 25 customers. They sell a couple million dollars a year and they're just sort of Ugh, like, what do we do now? Like, wh- why can't we get over there? Yeah. As I'm like, what the hell's the secret? And honestly, what I find a lot of times is sort of what I'm doing for a living now, which is the partnership and channel and alliance area, um, where if you've got a, a software application or a hardware device or something, and you're, you know, use my company's example, Logicate. So we do GRC and integrated risk management. We do that and we're great at it. And I think we have the best product on the market. But what we're doing now is growing our relationship with consulting firms and resellers and people like that, people are building up in our channel that are risk experts. And they're in this huge, huge, huge market doing big risk transformation exercises. Mm. So you can only get so far with that 
better mousetrap you've built, at some point you need to you need to enter a, a bigger conversation, you know, because you've run out of the people that just need a mousetrap. Now they need, you know, mousetraps that they can use in a, a 500 house development, you know, that are all centrally controlled and you know, can be remotely deployed or can, you know, you can monitor if they've been tripped or not. Like there's a whole different world out there that your product can't do by itself, but you can probably do it with partners who are going to now introduce you to all those other clients. Yeah. I think integration capability with other products in the security stack is important as well. And it's a two way street. It's not like, it's funny because it, Channel used to have kind of bad connotations. It was, you know, seller selling to other salespeople and everybody trying to get their cut. And you're not referring as much business to me as I refer to you. Um, I think it's matured well past that now. It's it's more like, you know, in the services industry, you're having a really, really consultative sale. Mm. So in essence, you're selling the concept and a program and some projects and then you're going back and filling in like, well, what products and services and hardware and software, what's appropriate for what we're trying to do. So now you're, you're trying to get yourself plugged into that bigger picture mm-hmm. instead of before you're just like, you know, we want you to sell our stuff. You know, how many do you need? Exactly. So um, let me ask you this. What solution don't you see in a market? What doesn't exist or what do you see coming down the pipeline? You know, I, I don't think it's as much a solution as um, a market. I really think the small, medium business market has been completely, I mean, I'm generalizing, it's my own opinion, but I think it's been almost completely ignored by our industry forever. You know, um, everybody's concerned with enterprise sales, selling to the enterprise, making the big, they all want to sell to Coca-Cola and yeah. You know, if you're in Atlanta, you're selling to Coca-Cola and Home Depot and a couple other people, you're not worrying about the business that's under a billion dollars. And I've said for ages that the best market out there to work in and the one that desperately needs help and the one no one's addressing is the one where, you know, the company may be worth 500 million bucks or even a billion, but they only have two or three or 10 people working in IT. They may have one person that calls themselves a security person. Yeah. So they desperately need help and they don't have time to figure all this stuff out. And they have a lot of money. You know, it's not, it's not a single standalone flower shop. Like it's a decent sized business, but a lot of them fall into the SMB market. And I, I strangely, <laughs> and you know, everything's context. Like I work for a company that we deal with compliance a lot, but this is one place where I think compliance can actually help. And that's because there's, there's a new thing out now, CMMC, which is the standard that anybody dealing with the Department of Defense is going to have to be CMC, CMMC compliant. So the analogy I always use is you could be a, a three-person paint manufacturer in Dayton, Ohio, that makes a very specific type of paint that goes on pencils that are sold to you know the Department of the Army. You have to be CMMC compliant. And now those people are going to get attention from our industry probably for the first time. Yeah. Um, So a lot of the services firms out there are running, (laughs) like running full speed, trying to figure out how they can address CMMC compliance. Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, that's one very specific market that's out there. But what I'm hoping is that the things that drive that 
CMMC stuff might trickle out into the other small, medium businesses that are out there. Yeah, that makes sense. Security teams within SMBs have very limited resources. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to land Citibank, but Citibank has more security people than most of the security companies I've worked for know. I mean, they really do. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> they have an army of people there. And they buy, they literally buy every single product that comes to market. They just stick it in their lab, but they're gonna have a copy of everything on the earth. And they figure out pretty much on their own what is gonna go into their architecture. Yeah. But there's, I mean, how can how can a company that's worth a half of a percentage point of that compete with that? You know, because they just don't get the attention. Okay, so fact or fiction. Should SMBs be less concerned about security because attackers aren't targeting them? Oh, that's the that's the horrible part about it. <laughs> I used to um, back when the, the target attack was one of the most over talked about attacks I've ever run into, and probably the most demoralizing case of FUD I've ever seen in our industry. Like it was disgraceful what our people were doing. Like cybersecurity companies are out there just. You know, well, look what happened to Target, 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 Target. So point of sale systems were, you know, vilified. Everything went crazy. But what kind of got thrown out in the wash a bit was the fact that it was a heating and air conditioning company in Pittsburgh is actually who got hit. <laughs> that's who that's who started the whole spiral fractured chain of failure that happened there. Um and I'm still convinced almost no matter what Target did, if you've got a vendor connected that's that one leak in the chain or link in the chain, then you, it, it's, it's again, it's a really cliche thing to say, but the chain's only as strong as its weakest link. And if you've got these small businesses connected to you that aren't being attended to properly, that's your perimeter right there. So... I, I don't know. I mean, I've always been a, somebody that pays an enormous amount of attention to vendor risk and third party risk. Um, I'm talking like going back to the 90s. Um, so it's always near and dear to my heart, but that's where that small business thing always comes to mind to me immediately. Because mm-hmm. anytime some big company talks about how, how secure they are, or, um, all the measures they have in place, and I always think to my head, well, I wonder how the guy that's, you know, exterminating for ants in the basement invoices you guys <laughs> like what's that portal look like that's a great not, example yeah you know, they need to and it's not an easy question because it's in theory the small businesses need as much stuff or services or protection as a big one does yeah that's a great point you know you're at the mercy of anyone within the supply chain Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that's why I, I've always been disappointed SMB didn't get addressed better these past couple of decades. And it, it, again, I could, you know, when, when we were talking about vendor risk, I kept harping on it back then. I, mm-hmm. I really thought vendor risk was going to be a thing that got SMB more attention, yeah. especially after Target, but it really didn't. Everybody has SMB parts of their company or they, most of them do, you know, but it's usually like a sales function. It's really not they really don't craft solutions and craft the products designed for a small market mm-hmm. licensing all of it. Right. It's usually like a one-off and human nature being what it is. I think a lot of companies, they, they avoid it. You know, right, it's, right. 
if you're a seller, I mean, if you look at sales at startups, will go through this, you know, you, you hire direct sales force. It's typically you're selling to smaller companies, but then your drive is always trying to get a bigger sale. So promotion progression in companies as you start off, you know, on the phone doing inbound outbound sales, then you're promoted to small medium, then you're promoted to mid market, then you're promoted to enterprise, then you go to named accounts. So it's almost seen as in the sales cycle as a, you know, that's the, the lower end sale. It shouldn't be. And what about the infrastructure costs for that solution provider to stand up a SaaS environment? Because that, you know, is going to reflect in the cost of a service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. It, it, at face value, it seems like SaaS would have solved it too, because you think, well, now, you know, we're not babysitting servers and hardware and, you know, huge electric bills, keeping things cold and cable farms and everything else. But you're right. I mean, that having to pay Amazon or Microsoft or Google for that slice of disk space gets expensive too. So just the cost of, you know, roughly the cost of data is so high now that the the people that get the break are the bigger ones because it's a volume discount. <laughs> so it is, it's inversely punishing. If you're small, you're paying a lot more for data than somebody that's really big. And with SMBs, you have to look at enterprise solutions because, you know, the alternative to that is low cost or open source solutions that have no support. So I just don't like seeing SMBs sacrifice security because of cost. Yeah. And I did that for, I was a CIO of a a nonprofit for about five or six years. And um, I, I was in that exact trap. I mean, I literally had hardly any budget at all. Hmm. So at the time I remember really well, we were buying uh, Astaro firewalls, which were, it was freeware at the time. I mean, it had a paid version, but we were doing the freeware and I was lucky. Like I had somebody that worked for me that was like an Astaro whiz. And then when they became a paid thing, we got a sweetheart deal. We're able to buy them pretty cheap. But I remember very, very well having to run, super lean and, and shore up our defenses with open source and freeware and shareware. It, it's tough. And again, if you're going to go down that route, you're probably going to need some decent brain power. Like I had, a, you know, I had a guy. It's not like the big boys. You just go get a maintenance contract with Cisco or something. You're, you're in there all hours of day and night trying to keep things up. So you mentioned LogicGate. Would you mind telling us about that for a moment? LogicGate is a, um, it's a software as a service. It's built on the graph database. It's like low code, no code. It's really easy to use. If you look at it, it it's, it's doing GRC and compliance on something that looks a lot like Visio. You know, you're, you're able to drag and drop things in. Connections are made behind the scenes. You know, we've got like every framework on the planet Earth is, is you can pull that into it and do almost anything you need to do, anything you can dream up. Um, but what we don't do is offer it as a managed service. So that's where the partnership thing comes in quite a bit. And again, in the, in the industry's defense, um, one of the biggest things that our partners anyway, and I like to think we have like really good, <laughs> solid, innovative, forward-looking partners. Um, most of them are challenging us and helping us figure out ways for them to offer things like GRC as a service or managed, um, managed assurance, managed compliance, managed risk, whatever they're branding it with. And I think that that is in the, 
in the industry, the sub industry I'm in, which is um, governance, risk, compliance, integrated risk management, all those type of things. I think that's probably a coming trend again for the stuff we've been talking about, because not everybody's got a compliance officer. Not everybody's got you. You may be beholden to GR, GR, or DP requirements in Europe, but you don't have a privacy officer to figure out what the hell that means. Mm. Um, but you might have a budget to do some services and you've got, uh, you know, you're already doing some of your stuff outsourced to your SIM or, you know, management and monitoring of different devices and things. So now you start to wonder, well, why can't we have managed compliance? And, you know, between clients and partners, um, we're being pushed in that direction, but like no more than, you know, like, Alien Vault or ArcSafe back in the day or Splunk, like they're not offering their own management. They're, everything gets done through like really good partners. That's where Logigate will be. You know, Got we it. have uh, we have some amazing risk people in house. We recruit pretty heavily from the consulting industry, um, so we've got a lot of risk brain power. But it's it's geared towards kind of crafting a solution and. Um, provisioning things and getting it implemented. It, again, it's not around how you're going to manage it after we leave or um, what that, you know, what the other 20 risk projects you have going on entail or how to hook them in. So again, partnerships are critical. Absolutely critical. Yeah. And with all the new state and local regulatory requirements, how difficult is that to keep up with? It's tough. And it, um, the good thing is once they're codified, we can get them into our system. So we can, I mean, quite literally, you know, if a framework or methodology or something pops up and we don't have it or a client requests or a partner says, you know, you guys got to do this now. Um, it's, it's a pretty trivial matter. We can get it done pretty easily as long as the stuff is literally down on paper. Um, what's tough is predicting or trying to allocate where we're really going to put our full force to bear. So we can support all these different frameworks and methodologies and stuff, but it's like anything else. Some of them, you know, vulnerability management or third-party risk management, um, CMMC, once it is really hitting the ground running and GDPR and uh, all these different ones, what we're trying to do is figure out the ones that we put extra development time and extra effort into. Like what, it's like any other market development. What do people really want really badly? So, we're trying to always ascertain, you know, we'll cover everything at, at the base level. So you can, we can get it in there. You can ingest things, but the ones where we really are working on automating and linking those, linking these frameworks together, you see, can duplicate information across different things. Um, that's where a lot of our roadmap development comes from. So like right now, you know, we've, we've greatly accelerated, um, we had vulnerability management, but now we have vulnerability management in conjunction with Tenable. So, you know, you've got the best vulnerability scanner out there. So we have all that enrichment coming into our vulnerability management now. Um, third-party risk, we're working with security scorecard and black kite. Again, we were doing third-party, but now it's that much richer because of all the content that they bring in. Um, so that's where a lot of our kind of resource allocation internally is, is geared towards yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So Joe, you mentioned you're down in the Tampa Metro area. Are there any cool bars or speakeasies down there that we should all be aware of? So I told you I grew up in Delaware County and outside Philly and um, 
my favorite bar at home was a place called the Stanley Cup on Baltimore Pike in uh, Springfield. And I've never found in my worldwide travels, never found any place that could, you know, no place could beat your living room. And that place is like my living room. But I always go to Irish bars when I travel, trying to just, you know, if there's such a thing as a connoisseur of Irish bars, I like to think I am. So when I moved to Tampa like 25 years ago, it, I swear to God, it was the last place on earth I expected to find even an adequate Irish bar. It's hot as hell. Everything's tiki bars and Jimmy Buffett, and Hawaiian shirts. There's a place in Tampa called Four Green Fields, which I swear is the best Irish bar on earth. <laughs> it's got a, it has a thatched roof and they, I'm going to mess it all up. But I, I think they talk about how it's one of like, two or three thatch roof, authentic thatch roof buildings in the United States, like Irish thatch roofs. Nice. Um, it's absolutely outstanding. Great. Bar. This is, this is in Tampa. Yeah. Four green fields. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and then super duper tourist trappy. There is um, probably my favorite place right now is a little bar called JD's, which is pretty much a locals bar on Indian rocks beach. Okay. And it's right behind, there's a huge tourist trap, Krabby Bills, really touristy, but like a quarter of a block behind it, like okay. walk 50 feet behind it, you've got this place, JD's. It's just a rocking fun bar. Tampa, like Tampa City, Four Green Fields, um, on the beach, JD's. Good to know. Okay, well, I just heard last call here. So you got time for one more? Yeah, man. Cool. If you opened a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh, it would be Hacker Shore after Hacker Shore beer in Germany. Yes. Yes. P S C H O R R. And the original Shore was named Joseph Shore, which I researched. Really? So probably have to be Hacker Shore with, it would be Hacker Shore beer on tap. And, uh, and then bullet old fashions, I would have to say. I love them. There's a there's a bullet only bar in St. Thomas. Again, a weird place to get a whiskey drink, but uh, might be the best old fashioned I ever had. Nice, man. Well, listen, Joe, thanks for joining me today. Where can our listeners find you online? Probably LinkedIn is the easiest. Um, okay. Shoot me an email. Joe.Shore, S-C-H-O-R-R at Logigate.com. Excellent. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Take care, man. You too, Chris. Thanks a million. Hey, you, Chris. Can I get a ride? Barcode patrons. If you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcode podcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at the barcode podcast.com.